things girlfriends share. Welcome to Girlfriend It, hosted by women for women on a variety of topics most relevant to our daily lives. Weekly, we have incredible, inspiring, and influential guests as we explore everything from why ambitious women don't quite reach their full potential to how we deal with the dailiness of life. Together, we will hear compelling stories of other individuals in hopes of one thing. How do we get to know ourselves? All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have an amazing show today, if I do say so myself. This is Patty Wyatt, and I will be your host today. And joining us, we have Rob Flood. He's the community and care pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in Pennsylvania. And prior to being a pastor, Rob was with Family Life. It's a a division of crew in Little Rock, Arkansas. But now what's so exciting is he's here to talk about a new book with these words. And we're talking about marriage, the craziness of marriage. And I just have to, on a side note, Rob, I have to tell you, um, there's a quote of what's the best way to get your husband to remember your anniversary, get married on his birthday. And my son last year just got married literally on his birthday. So (laughs) it's like, all right, you're doing it right. Well, welcome, Rob. How are you today? I'm doing great, Patty. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, I'm going to dive in here because, first of all, I I love the name of your book with these words because, boy, that really does say it all when you think of marriages and how those words can scar. I know my mom used to say, watch your words because it's either going to burn a hole or breathe life. And uh, so true, all, all the scars that can take place. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. So I wrote an article, about a 2,500-word article for Family Life when I was there. And that, that flowed out of an experience we had in the first 15 months of our marriage. Uh, we both are very articulate, educated people. Uh, and when we got married, there had been a longstanding pattern of sin uh, in our relationship that uh, we had gotten right, we believed, with each other before we got married. Uh, but then on the honeymoon, we realized, no, we didn't get right. There's still lots of problems. And uh, it was on day five of our honeymoon that we had what has been to date the biggest fight of our marriage. We're coming up on 25 years now. Uh, it all spiraled from there downhill and the damage that our words did on day five of our honeymoon. And then in the year and a half that followed, it really took years and years to recover from. Mm -hmm. And so when I came to write the article and then ultimately take that short article and expand it into this book, what I'm trying to do is to help couples understand not only the danger of words, but the power for life in words, if we'll just use them according to God's directions. Mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, imagine that, right? <laughs> <laughs> if, if one could just go by what God has to say. <laughs> it actually works. Yeah. Uh, okay. So because I I am the female in this little conversation, I do want to get into the nitty gritty. Tell us a little bit more about this, this nasty argument, because so often we feel so alone in that, in knowing 
just those details of, oh, wow. And, and maybe you can't. Maybe that's just, you know, I'm going too far, which I usually do. I have no filter. Uh, but explaining that, you know, what, what happened, especially day five, that, right. that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't mind you going further. We, uh, we had struggled with purity during our engagement. And about three or four months before we were married, we were both very convicted about that, received help from the Lord. And then from that point forward, we're able to walk in purity. But we thought uh, abstaining fixed the problem, Mm -hmm. but it only fixed one of the problems. It didn't fix the other problems of the relational damage that had happened and the violation of trust uh, and the care, particularly that, that Gina felt in my care. Uh, if those things weren't dealt with, we didn't know to deal with those before we were married. And so on our honeymoon, when that's supposed to be this wonderful time of romantic intimacy, all of the negativity from the sinful expression of that during our engagement really came full bore into our lives. And I didn't really understand it at the time. She she could not have articulated it at the time. Yeah. It's just that it's just that we we did not experience safety and care in one another's company during intimacy. And of course, that really frustrated me in our honeymoon. We had a huge conflict, just yelling. No, you know, we didn't throw anything, nothing like that, but yelling awful words coming out of our mouths. Uh, And after about an hour and a half, she stormed out of the hotel room and I went to sleep. So that that's I I will counsel couples. That's a bad (laughs) way for us to end the conflict. But I I was I was was lie, Rob. Um, But it really from there now, not only is intimacy not state safe for our marriage, but conversation is now not safe for our marriage. And so we drifted very quickly into isolation for the next year or so, uh, talking only when necessary, often through gritted teeth or with snide remarks uh, until we really had thought we both made grievous mistake in getting married. Uh, Did you, during this time of the year of um, talking through gritted teeth, did you still have intimacy Almost not at all. Yeah. Um, and and from one sense, it was really fine with both of us because we had grown to foster such a distrust that cultivated a dislike for mm-hmm. one another uh, that, you know, there was just way too much relational damage to sift through to get to any kind of uh, meaningful intimacy. Yeah. So then... What finally broke or took place that you finally realized, okay, we we need to figure this out. We need to unpack some of this to be able to move forward. What what happened next? Yeah, so there's a couple of, of pieces to it. The first piece was we went to a marriage conference, actually a family life marriage conference. Uh, And there we received deeper teaching to understand more fully what we were involved in in marriage. But we both walked away from there fully convinced, now we know what's wrong with the other person. 
then, you know, I was not a servant leader. She was not a submissive wife. And um, so we, we went away from that educated, but only on the stuff that the other person was doing wrong. Uh, but God used that down the road. Mm-hmm. The, the next thing that happened was we were involved in marriage counseling uh, at the time, not giving it, but receiving it. And uh, the, the, the man was, I think, a, a dear brother, really wanted to help us, but he just blamed her entirely. And I knew in my mind, my conscience, that was not correct. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I was just very frustrated spending money, not getting any benefit. So I told Gina, listen, we're not, we're not going to come here anymore. Uh, there were two or three other issues that had, cult- that had built up over that year. I gave in on every one of them. And I just said, listen, whatever damage happens from this is all your fault, but we're done. Not with the marriage, but with the marriage counseling. What happened in that moment was it just me releasing some of those issues was just enough grace. Not I didn't intend it as grace. I intended it spitefully. But it was just <laughs> enough grace from God at work that he began now to bring back everything that I learned in that marriage conference and convict me with all the stuff I ignored. And without me doing a single thing, God did the same thing in Gina after that exchange brought back everything she had learned in that marriage conference. But now she was looking in a mirror instead of looking at me. And the Lord convicted us, softened our hearts toward him, gave us courage to dare to hope we might be able to fix this thing. And very early in that restoration process, we realized if we're going to fix intimacy and finances, And if we're going to forgive and repent, we're going to have to communicate well. And so we we went to work trying to learn how to communicate well very early in that process. And that's where we started to benefit from these tools. You know, in your book, which I I highly recommend for those of you listeners out there to to read this book, not not only if you're having issues or some struggles in your marriage, but just it's a great reminder to tap into some of these principles in communication. And one thing I I love is how you talk about the just giving the analogy of prayer is like a veggie tray at the Super Bowl party. because so often, I mean, I know I've talked to very, who I think, you know, strong, godly couples, and they don't pray together. They pray in all these other ministries that they're leading and doing, and yet they're not taking time to to truly pray together, you know, maybe during a meal or, you know, I mean, prior to a meal or whatever, putting your kids down at night and, uh, you know, Go through, unpack a little bit of that. I I know when my husband and I, we go on prayer walks in the morning and it's so intimate when I listen to him pray and what he's praying about and how he's, that relationship he has with Christ is, is so sacred and beautiful. So unpack a little bit of that. Yeah, good. Uh, let me, let me quickly address the veggie tray in case people are confused what that means. (laughs) Um, uh, at every every year, we have a Super Bowl party, and my wife is very health conscious. She feeds us very well in, in with lots of nourishment. But at the Super Bowl party, she allows us to to get all the wings and the nuggets and the fries and all of the the, the nasty stuff. Uh, but she always has a vegetable tray there, and 
the kids always have to take some stuff from the veggie tray before they grab the fried stuff. Um, I, of course, have to t fill half my plate with the veggie tray. But um, the, the, the principle there, the reason I use it is that we're not drawn to it. We're much more to prayer. We're much more drawn to the other parts of the Christian life. In marriage, we're much more drawn to other parts of marriage. But the veggie tray is the only thing on the kitchen table that's actually healthy for you, that will nourish you. Mm -hmm. And so, so prayer in marriage, when we ignore it, we're actually skipping over the one thing that genuinely nourishes every other part of our marriage. And so when we pray together as couples, we really cure a hundred ills. It helps sexual intimacy. It helps you understand one another, regardless of which room in the house you happen to be in. It helps you know where the other person is walking with the Lord, just as you were talking about your, your husband's relationship with Christ. It helps you know what's burdening the other person, your spouse. And, and it draws you together in, in so many ways into one flesh. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Also, when you talk in your book about couples thinking of physical touch as the opposite of communication and, you know, missing the mark in that way of, of thinking. Tell us a little bit more of your thought process with this. Yeah. So the tool of physical touch, it's one of the five tools in the book. And it's built on this idea that it's very hard to be in conflict with someone you are affectionately touching. And just for clarity, I'm not talking any type of sexual touch here at all. I'm talking holding hands, uh, some one person's legs draped across the other person's legs, so, so, sitting side by side so your shoulders are touching. Some kind of affectionate way you would touch a spouse, uh, but not in a sexual way. Uh, the, the whole idea here is that physical touch serves as a warning sign when a conversation starts to go sideways. So if Gina and I are going to sit down, there's still a couple topics that are trickier for us than others. So let's say we're going to sit down and talk about finances. I, I, I'll take Gina's hand. We'll sit close enough to where we can hold hands and we'll start talking. If she starts to get upset or I start to get upset, subconsciously, we actually let go of one another's hands. And what we do is we create separation for the sin we're about to commit against one another. And so that tool of physical touch helps foster communication. It helps protect it from the enemy's attacks where he would love to divide in these sensitive topics, physical touch lets you know when he's starting to succeed. Physical touch is a wonderful thing to do after, let's say, a sin has happened and forgiveness has been given. It's a wonderful thing to come back together and express that unity that forgiveness has restored through physical touch. Sometimes people would say, okay, if we can't talk, at least let me come here and hug you. Let me hold your hand. And I'd say that's fine. But it's not if you can't talk. It's at all times. Anytime conversation is about to happen or particularly difficult ones, physical touch will help you avoid the landmines that await you in that minefield. Mm. And I also, and, and maybe maybe I'm off on a different tangent here, but the, the physical touch just for your children to see. I know I grew up, There's I'm the baby of six kids, and my mom would 
jump in the car. We, you know, he, my dad had a truck would jump in the truck and just basically almost sit on my dad's lap while he was driving. She'd be so close to him. And wherever we were, you know, we we're sitting at the dinner table and a song would come on and my dad would grab my mom and, and start dancing with her and waltzing around the room. And just that continuous touch of them walking and holding hands continuously, it, it's powerful just to be able to see that and show that and express it, I think, to to your children of what what a good role model of doing that. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's a wonderful book, a parenting book, uh, Gospel-Powered Parenting by William Farley. Uh, he, he has a chapter uh, on the importance of marriage in parenting. And in that chapter, he outlines almost exactly what you just said, the the affection shown between a husband and a wife provides tremendous security to mm. children and to a family. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I know it, it did for me and, and my mm. parents raised six kids that love Jesus. And I just wonder, you know, you always think, what's the formula? Like if you could mm. just take a pill and make it happen and, <laughs> Uh, yeah, they were, they were beautiful role models to us. So what are the, the four key principles talking about a formula? And I know, I know everybody's putting their junk together, you know, fitting those puzzles. And we know those, you know, it sounds so trite, but, you know, listen to God's directions, but what are the, the four key principles that you talk about in your, in your book? Great. Yeah. So I lay a, a, found, a biblical foundation up front in the book before I get to the practical tools. And, uh, and this first chapter is built on four key principles. The first one is we should speak so people encounter God. And this is this comes out of First Peter 4, where it's, it says to us that those who speak should do so as oracles of God. We are ambassadors of Christ. And that isn't just to the lost and dying world. That's to our kids. That's to our spouse. We are ambassadors and our actions, our words should always be in keeping with the King who sent us with the one we're representing. And so when we speak with our spouse, we, we should not as followers of Christ, take the opportunity to insert our own agenda into that conversation. We should always be aware, what is God up to? What do, how does God want me to speak at this time? The second principle, uh, second, principles two, three, and four all flow out of Ephesians 4, 29, which says, you know, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so principle two is we should build up with our words and not tear down. Anytime we try to put our spouse in his place or her place, anytime we try to get even because of something hurtful that was said to us, we're out of step with the Spirit of God because those words are not intended to build up. Our instruction in Ephesians 4 is that we should let no words come out of our mouths except those that build up. And then principle three is we should speak in a way that fits the occasion. And this is this comes right out of that phrase, as fits the occasion in Ephesians 4.29. There are right times and wrong times to say things. Even if we have the right thing to say, we can be out of step with the will of God if we say it at the wrong time. Mm. 
And so we need to be thinkers as well as speakers. We need to study our spouse so that we understand that if I come home from a, a day at work and I find Gina has had a challenging day with our youngest child, let's say, that's not the time to go ahead and insert a, a, a controversial topic. I, I want to I roll up my sleeves, start emptying the dishes from the sink and jump in. There will be another time for me, a better occasion for me to speak those words. And then principle four is we should give grace to others through our words. And that's how Ephesians 4.29 ends. The, the point here is not that we should always say sweet, complimentary things, but even if we have to bring a hard word, we need to bring it for the purpose of giving grace. We need to bring that nugget of truth wrapped in genuine love so that the effect of our words, whether it's corrective or encouraging or exhorting or cautioning, the effect is that it gives grace to the person who heard it. Mm -hmm. I like those. Those are, um, I, I was, I was typing away, Rob, uh, you know, you, you mentioned how long you and your wife have been married now. And as you look back and you go, okay, this is what took place on our honeymoon. And now we are, are here. Would you say that you and your wife have this communication figured out now? And I, the reason why I ask that, um, I actually train in the corporate world all on communication and mediation and uh, conflict resolution. And I laugh because during this quarantining time, I have a, a freshman in college, a Gen Zer in my house back from the dorm. Mm. And <laughs> all the things <laughs> I train and teach, they go out the door. And so it's not so much with, with my, my spouse, but I, I find it hysterical how you know, it evokes an emotion and you go, where did all that, that knowledge, that head knowledge, where did it go? It's not, I'm not pulling from it right now. And I'm definitely not pulling from Ephesians. So how are you with communicating? Have you figured it out? Uh, let me tell you what we have figured out. We figured out that uh, communicating in a self-dependent way bought us our first 18 months of marriage. And what we have learned and continue to be keenly aware of is that we are dependent on the help and power of the Holy Spirit when it comes to communicating with one another. So I would say uh, we've learned these tools. We are more effective at communicating now than we were, let's say, 20 years ago. But have we figured it out? No, we remain as dependent upon God now as ever. And just when we feel like, okay, this stage of life is under control, we are communicating well on all these topics, we're communicating well about all of these children, we have six of our own. Uh, as soon as that happens, you know, the 12-year-old turns 13, or the high school graduate goes to college, and now there's an entirely different set of challenges that we're facing with this child, and we go way back to the beginning on our faces, together before God, asking for his help, reapplying these tools, needing to give grace to one another. And by the grace of God, he's been faithful in every stage to provide it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said, yes. 
And you you've kind of you hit on the the four principles, but will you just I, I want to say briefly, but not too briefly. Uh, tell us about the five tools of communication. Okay? I, I I think that that the way that you um, put this in the book, it's just one of those things. It, it, just like you said earlier um, on the veggie trade, we don't take the you know we don't focus on the way we're communicating. We have all these blind spots, and we're not even realizing there's tools out there to put in your in your toolbox and use. So, can you tell us a little bit more about these five tools of communication? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the second half, the second half, listen to me, the, the middle section of the book is, uh, is the tools for communication. The first one is the tool of first response. And this is built on the premise that the direction of a conversation is not primarily governed by the person who starts it, but by the person who responds to the person who starts it. So uh, the, there's a, the Proverbs 15.1 tells us that a gentle answer turns away wrath. Now, let's just picture that. Wrath has started the conversation. It's coming my way. My answer will determine whether it gets absorbed and returned or whether it gets turned away. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And we see this perfectly, consistently in the life of Christ. Throughout the Gospels, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are always trying to entrap him, trying to discredit him. And so they'll throw something where they're like, oh, man, that's a yes or no question. And if Jesus says yes or Jesus says no, he's going to alienate some people. And Jesus never falls for it. He always redirects that question into some of the best teaching found in the scriptures. And so this tool of first response gives a lot of power to that person who responds to direct conversations in a helpful way. There's the tool of prayer, which we talked about the power of prayer. The importance there is that prayer involves the third person uh, that, is, that is in that conversation. God is always there to, par to partake in our conversation. And let me skip the tool of physical touch. We hit that. Uh, the next tool is a tool of mirroring, which allows us to repeat back to our spouse what we understand them to say so that conversations always go forward without misunderstanding. And we've already hit the tool of proper timing, that there is a right time to say the right thing, and there can be a wrong time to say the right thing. Mm. Okay, great, great tools. And just, I mean, there's so much more on, on communication. And I know another great book is the, the five love languages and how mm -hmm. we communicate uh, in that direction. But the, I, I really appreciate how you have unpacked those, those five tools. And if you were to give right now, let's say, I actually have a very dear friend of mine that is really struggling with her marriage. And we, we only have one minute here, but what would you say to our listeners out there that, that we're hearing this now it's 30 seconds, but we're hearing this. What's one tip. If you could just walk away with one nugget, what would you tell our listeners today? I'd encourage them to press toward God, press toward his word and press toward accountability, help community that oftentimes we, we get trapped in our bad communication and bad relationships because we've gone it alone. 
Mm, I love that. And you're not alone. Great tip. Thank you so much, Rob, for being on our show today. And we'll talk next Thanks for listening to Girlfriend It, because our girlfriends are where we get our best tips for life. Find us on Facebook at Girlfriend It. Hit subscribe to iTunes or toginet.com. 